Uh, today, Lauren is going to be doing the majority of the class uh, today. We, we've talked the last couple of weeks just about some, uh, some science, uh, lean a little bit heavier on the, on the science uh, side of things. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about uh, uh, the, the scripture side of things. Not that we were anti-scripture the last couple of weeks, but uh, we're going to be talking about how we got what we have. Just how, how, how it came into being. And, that, and, and so for the next few minutes as Lauren's talking, I kind of want you thinking about um, there, there's some differences in, in the sacred text of science and the sacred text of faith. And there's some of the differences how we read it, some of the differences how we got it, too. So in a science world, what we have uh, is we, we derive truths. We do experiments, we do observations, and we do tests, and we try to boil away all of these other uh, observations and all of these other things that are in orbit out there, and we wind up with an essential truth. We wind up with essential truth. So <clears throat> Isaac Newton writes a book that's about this thick that boils it down to force equals mass times acceleration. Right? I mean, it's, it's like this thick, and, and then it boils down to three variables. You know, um, and that's what we remember. Uh, 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 Albert Einstein does the same thing, um, and he boils his famous essential truth down to E equals mc squared. And that's th those are those are phenomenal uh, uh, phenomenal truths. Uh, Watson and Crick uh, conducted a, numerous experiments and numerous theories, just trying to come up with a picture of what DNA looks like, and it comes down to four letters: A, C, G, T, right? Um, uh, and, and so we have these we have these essential truths that have been derived, and everything else has been boiled away from that. Well, you have the truths, and then you have the applications of the truths. And we are still grappling with what is what are the applications for E equals M C squared? That can be applied on the universal level, and it appears that. A lot of it can apply on the subatomic level at the same time. Um, we are still grappling with the ACGT and uh, gene therapy and, uh, and what, all can, what all can be unlocked inside of our own DNA, about half of which doesn't appear to do anything. Um, so uh, so we, we have these truths and we have these applications of the truths. And when it comes to scripture, this is where we get into murky, murky waters. Um, I think we get into, into murky waters where we say, well, this part of Scripture is more important than that part of Scripture. But then we realize, Jesus said, this part of Scripture is more important. He said, there's two things. There's, there's, there's two things that everything else hangs on. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are indisputable, essential, universal truths. They can be applied on the universal level and they can be applied on the subatomic level as well. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Where we get kind of wrapped around the axle a little bit is the applications of those truths. Because Jesus spent a lot of time going around saying, um, you know you're supposed to love your neighbor, but let me tell you something. Your neighbor is not necessarily who you think your neighbor is. Um, your neighbor isn't necessarily the person right next to you. Matter of fact, your neighbor might be your enemy. Um, and, and that has a big 
influence on how we view Scripture and how we uh, and, and how we uh, operate in the spiritual world. And today, we can even say our neighbor may not even be born yet. You know, our neighbor doesn't live right now. Our neighbor might be our grandkid or our great 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 kid. You know, the things that we're doing, loving toward that person as well. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, and I might have a view on something that I think is loving toward a person, and somebody else may have an opposing view that they say, I am doing this because I love my neighbor. And that gets hard, too, that you could have two people saying, I love my neighbor as myself, saying and doing two opposite things. Um, and then all of a sudden we find ourselves in church going, heretic, right? So, Lauren, we need you to explain all of this and work all of this out for us about these essential truths. And I'll hand out half today. No problem. <laughs> that should be easy. So, no worries. <laughs> Uh, there's a handout going around. At, I would ask that you not look at it too closely yet because we'll look at it together and I don't want us to be distracted. Um, and while they're passing it out, I'll write something on the board that's a quote that I've always remembered from one of my favorite Bible teachers at Harding. Oh, that doesn't work. Let's I think this is actually a, a really important piece for us to bear in mind. So I'm going to leave this up here and we'll, we'll turn back to it as well. Um, at Otter Creek, we are members of a tradition that affirms uh, the primacy of Scripture for figuring out what we're doing, uh, for figuring out who we are, what uh, God is up to in the world, what we have been called to be, and... Um, we are like other Christians in that. So throughout the Christian tradition, throughout the um, entirety of the faith, ever since it began, there has been something like a rule of faith um, from the very get-go that eventually became um, the kind of, kind of talking point around which people decided what belonged in the canon of Scripture. And ever since then, um, even the Roman Catholic Church, by the way, has seen scripture as the primary authority. So uh, in terms of who we are and what we're doing, it's only, it's kind of a recent modern phenomenon that there are even any Christians at all who say, I don't really read scripture. Um, that's, that's actually a, a contemporary thing. So uh, we at this church are part of a group that very much affirms the primacy of scripture. And this class is no different. So one of the reasons why people today sometimes say things like, I don't really have to read scripture, it's not my primary authority, is because uh, they also say things like, I believe in science. As if believing in science and believing in the truths we find in scripture are somehow in conflict with each other, which we also disagree with, right? Okay, so that's what we're going to kind of think about 
Uh, so first of all, the kind of go-to text when people are talking about um, what is the nature of Scripture is this one. It's familiar to all of us, I'm sure. All Scripture is inspired by God. Literally, this means this is a word that, that is only used here in the Bible that means God breathed. Um, some scholars think that Paul may have coined it, may have been his original word. All Scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. So we're so used to saying this that sometimes we're not paying attention to something here. Um, What was happening in this passage, what kind of scripture was Paul talking about? The Old Testament, right? This isn't actually talking about what we hold in our hands as the New Testament. This is talking about the Old Testament. Um, So that's interesting because we take this statement and apply it to what we hold in our hands is the New Testament along with the Old. But the question is, why do we feel that kind of confidence about the New Testament canon? Okay, so Paul's saying this about the Old. So it's worth thinking about what we mean by this. Um, so there are different models of inspiration. What we mean by this, there's kind of, um, let's see, I think I've got mine out of whack here. Yeah. Okay, so there's different theories about what it could be. Um, This is a very rough sketch, okay? Um, Some people have said there's something like a mechanical process happening. This is the one we're probably familiar with. I think as kids, we might have imagined something like this to be true, that the Holy Spirit kind of takes over the body and the hand of the writer and is the one kind of guiding exactly what's happening. So in this model, the Spirit dictates and humans are passive instruments. The problem with this is that it can't account for different writing styles in in the text. There's other problems as well, but that's a really basic one. Um, It's hard to say why then would the the scriptures be so diverse if the Spirit was guiding them every time. Um, Why would there literally be different timelines around the crucifixion and the Gospels, right? So that's hard to justify. Another model is what's called the ordinary or natural model. This is like... Uh, the writers were inspired the same way an artist would be inspired, just kind of overcome by love for something. Um, problem with this is, it, uh, is obvious. It denies the biblical claims to divine guidance. So um, over and over in Scripture, there's the claim that God is speaking through this text. God is speaking through the prophet or through the writer. So we can't really go with this one. Another option is illumination, and this is the idea that the Holy Spirit is operating on the mind of the reader rather than on the writer, that it's you who's illuminated. Now, what I find interesting about this is I think we actually don't talk about this quite enough, how the Spirit is actually working through the body of the church in reading the text, but I don't think we can go with this only because it doesn't account for the tensions amongst us and the way we interpret things. I mean... I'm sure you do too, know some really great people, great Christian people who see things really differently when they read the Bible. And so it's kind of hard to say um, it's the spirit that's causing our conflict when obviously our call is also to become unified. Okay, and then there's a, a model called plenary or verbal. Basically, this is the idea that every word of the text is God's word. There's nothing in it that isn't purposeful, that isn't there on, you know, for some reason to guide us. Um, so this is where we can get into practices where we're kind of unpacking 
every single little phrase or you know kind of way things are worded. The problem is that it doesn't account for um, translation, what's lost in translation. Um, so that, that can be quite a bit, right? So when we're reading our Bible in English and obsessing over the meaning of a phrase, sometimes it can be frustrating when we realize it could have been interpreted five other ways, right? And then we're like, well, <coughs> why didn't they tell me that? I've been like obsessing over this, right? Hey, Lauren, I have a question. Yeah. This is the first time in human history where most of the world is literate. Um, and then going back to the printing press, back before then, you know, it was just a couple of percent of people were literate. So when we talk about readers, that was just a very few, you know, if you went, if you, I think if you're going to say, well, it's all illuminated because of how you read it, well, that kind of stinks to be the 98% who can't read. Yeah, that's right. Um, was there scripture before there was writing? Yeah, so we're actually going to, that's a great question, Kevin. Uh, we're going to talk about that. Okay. So yeah, there's right. some, there was something, no, it, it is a great question. Um, actually was, let me make sure that there was nothing else I was going to say on this point. So let's look at the handout that you have. Look at the, the side with the, the little box that says from Jesus to us. So this is to Kevin's question, what was scripture before there were people who could read it, who had access to it? I mean, it is a, yeah, it's a, it's a modern phenomenon that people can read widely, um, that people have what, you know, the sacred words of the text in their hands rather than having to go to church to hear it read to them. That used to be the way it was done, right? Um, does everyone have one? Is there someone who needs one? Okay. Okay, so this is a really basic just kind of outline of how just the gospel tradition alone might have been passed down. Um, so when we're thinking about which kind of mode of inspiration we're going we're gonna to go with, there's some options that I haven't put up here, by the way. But Okay, so stage one, you have Jesus saying and doing things that are considered remarkable and people talking about that, right? Um, word gets around, Okay. Stage two is the, what's called the early tradition. And there's an oral piece to that that's usually happening first. Okay? There might have been, I mean, this is, this is debated. Scholars love talking about this. There might have been written, written pieces that preceded oral traditions in certain places. But more or less, we have to think about that people are telling stories about Jesus first before people are writing them down and, and sharing them that way. So people are remembering what Jesus said and did and sharing these memories with others. And kind of around the same time, people are writing down brief accounts of things that Jesus said and did, and they're circulating those. Um, and so eventually, you get to the point where there are certain stories that have made the biggest impact in the communities. There's certain things that people keep coming back to, to sustain their faith in Christ as the Son of God. So you eventually have the gospel writers compiling their books, drawing on oral tradition and early written sources to form narratives about Jesus' life and work. These are all written before 120 AD. And then it's not, I've got this like scratched in the margin. The church doesn't make a definition of this until 382. Up until then, a lot of these texts are circulating, people are sharing them. And there are some that stand out as most important, and that's how those decisions get made. But it's not an easy, everyone doesn't agree on what belongs in the canon. There's debate about that. So eventually, though, there's this preservation of the manuscripts that happens. 
And then way later you start getting translation um, into other languages. And then finally, eventually, we get to the point where you, know, you have the Reformation where Martin Luther is arguing for the importance of translating, for example, the Bible into German. I mean, that was a really contested point. He wanted to give the Bible to the everyday reader, and the church didn't want that to happen. They thought they needed control of it to kind of control interpretation, right? So we take it for granted that we have a Bible in our hands in our language, but that's not a, you see, that's not a clean process, right? The Bible didn't just drop down as it is into our hands. There, it went through this whole process. So usually when I present this material to my freshmen, some of them get kind of thrown off by this. And the question they have is, well, then why are we reading this? Can we trust it? Is God actually, is this a, actually a sacred text? And if it is, why do we, what reason do we have to believe it if we see humans were this involved in putting it together? So that's the question we have to ask ourselves. I think it, we're, we're left with kind of two options. One, either we made this all up, or two, the Spirit works through these kinds of processes. The Spirit actually guided that process. The Spirit was involved in the human agency that was involved in producing the text. Yeah. How does that fit into this? It looks like there's a fifth one up there. I, th I think that's right. I, didn't, I, I purposely sure. didn't add another. Now, I have another question. When Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians, and most of his letters were in response to problems and questions, did he know that was going to be scripture? Well, that's a great question. Um, and the, a related question then, what about people who are writing today to do similar type things? Will that someday... Well, no, we're locked into something now. So, so these are, this is a long conversation, but a short answer to the, did Paul know? Obviously, I don't know what Paul knew, right? It's hard for me to say. But Paul clearly understood himself as writing in the tradition of the prophets, in the tradition of uh, the great kind of arbiters of the faith. So I don't think it would have shocked him to learn that his words were thought of as being scripture. Now, he might, it might shock him how we apply them sometimes, right? But I don't think, I, I think Paul understood his work as being central to the life of the church the way the Old Testament scriptures were central to the life of Israel. Um, but that's just my, that's my personal understanding and sense of this, okay? And then in terms of people today and what they're writing, that all goes back to why do we need to have a closed canon? And... Quite simply, it's because we think this all culminates with the Incarnation as the, the point of everything. So we don't need to keep unfolding and unfolding this testament of God's work in history. We have the authoritative uh, account of how God works in history. We believe, that's our confession, in the person of Jesus Christ, his, his life, death, resurrection, ascension. And so we have the account of the early church as a way of kind of showing us how this first community that's preserving all of this is, is putting this together, but we don't need to keep adding to the to the rule of faith. Yeah. Okay, I, I meant to bring this up earlier, with, with, but I wasn't sure about with Kevin. He's talking about application. It, don't we have a special word for that in science? It's called engineering. <laughs> and if you look at this, how do we apply scripture? Is, is there an equivalent engineering? And isn't that where we really run into problems? Not the truth, but how we apply the truth. It's a, it's a form of uh, scriptural engineering as to, to function. Yeah, how, how, 
how do you how do you use what you got? And, and, but and this is one of the things that I, I, I'm I'm woefully ignorant about, and and I'm hoping that we can I, I, I want to learn more about because the I boy I'm I'm all nice here yeah just help, help hit the gong when I say something completely wrong here but, but I, I have I have wondered if the new if, if what we call the New Testament is exactly what you just said. Is the we have this incarnation, we have the truth, but now now let's engineer this because maybe we maybe, maybe we got all the words right, but we weren't looking at the applications correctly. And I see a lot of the arguments that Jesus was having with the Pharisees as engineering type of arguments. Like you guys know what the truth is. You're just not doing it right. You guys you guys uh, <laughs> You know, turn, turn the other cheek, right? Uh, go the extra mile. Um, love, love your enemies. Uh, all, all these sorts of things are what Jesus was saying. You know what the truth is, but you're not. You, you have put the truth into a tiny little box, and you're not even dreaming about all the applications that could be used for this wonderful thing that that I, you know, Jesus called Scripture Torah. You know, and everything He said, He was, he was throwing Torah back at him. He's saying, it's in there, it's in there, it's in there, it's in there, and you guys have made it a much more complicated uh, application than what I think that it needs to be. So, I think this is helpful for, for turning our attention to this kind of process of revelation. But what Kevin's calling us to do that's really important is we want to read Scripture the way Scripture asks us to read it, right? And the way we can take some pretty important cues from the way Jesus is engaging with it, the way Paul is engaging with it, okay? So, um, real quick question in the back. Yes, uh, when Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, if you preach any other gospel, what other gospel is he talking about? Yeah, so um, if, you're, if you're preaching something that conflicts with this core witness to who Jesus is as the Son of God, um, and what he understood to be core to that faith. So in Galatia, for example, they're, they're still debating what, who's in and who's out of God's family. Do you have to become ethnically Jewish? right? And so some people are saying, yeah, you've got to become circumcised. You've got to go through the whole thing. And Paul's saying that's counter to this gospel. The gospel, the, the core proclamation is that God's family now includes Gentiles. You don't have to become ethnically Jewish to be part of God's family. Um, so that's where he's saying there is something that we, there's this kind of core message that we're applying, right? That we're looking for ways to apply in these different contexts. But, but when we think back to what the early church, what did Israel understand? And it, you know, Christ is inheriting Israel's scriptures. He's understanding his sense of vocation through their story. So we have this process of revelation. Uh, we have to remember that Revelation isn't the text itself, that Revelation happens and the text is attesting to Revelation, and that God can still reveal himself to us through the text, okay? But there's a process here. First, God acts within history. And when God acts within history, we see something of his character, right? His intentions. So if we're Israel, we're understanding creation this way. We're understanding the call of Abraham this way. Exodus, God's appearance at Sinai, all of these kind of key episodes in their story reveal the character of God. Um, God is different from the, uh, the gods of neighboring 
religions, right? Neighboring countries and societies. God, the God that we serve doesn't make us slaves. God calls us out of slavery. God calls us to live um, in certain ways that, are, that look pure as, as compared with the ways that neighboring cultures are living. Um, God wants to live in community with us, in close relation with us, if we're Israel, right? <coughs> okay, so this is giving us a clue to who God is, what God wants, and we can unpack some of this more in terms of theological vocation, but I want to wait until Terry Briley comes and does his thing on Genesis, because that'll be really good, and then we can talk about what's happening in Genesis theologically. Okay, so, but we have these key events, and again, it's similar to this oral history that happens with canonization, the community of faith is processing this. This is number two. They're processing or interpreting God's acts together. Uh, this results in the key stories, the key events that become eventually um, kind of set in stone in terms of this is core to who we are. This is core to our understanding of who we are. So um, eventually this is canonized. So the canonization of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is this long process, but it's some, somehow in some ways similar to the New Testament. Okay, so but what I want to highlight is point three, <clears throat> that Scripture, Old Testament Scripture and New Testament, is a product of the community in relationship with God. It's the community that is seeking to be like God. We're seeking to be transformed, to live transformed lives. So this wrestling with who God is, what God has shown us, results in a canonization of text that we understand to be core to that vocation, core to who we are, is seeking to be transformed. <clears throat> Does that make sense? Questions there? Clarification? Okay. All right, so... Is that in the, in the science world, when somebody writes, a paper, they do a research paper and it's cited and footnoted and got drafts and it has citations and it'll have 20 or 30 different references to it and they write it and then they put it out there and they say all right everybody throw your best dart at it let's peer review it is that is that a is our scripture peer reviewed well it is not in the sense that i mean even the modern process of writing an article and it being peer reviewed is some would be really foreign to this ancient community, right? But it is in the sense that it's, it's sort of like it's um, refined by, by being used in the community over time. So um, the texts that stand the test of time, it's easier for us sometimes to think about this in terms of New Testament. So the texts that made it into the canon were the ones that had been the most influential for the greatest number of Christians over the, the widest space, Right? So these texts are being circulated, and they're being read in worship services. And the people, when they gather for worship, they're hearing from the Old Testament, the prophets, and they're hearing from the accounts of the apostles to who Jesus was. And then they're probably reading some really important letters from fathers of the faith, okay? Uh, people who have told them how to behave in their context, and this has become really important for their sense of who they are. And so if you think about it, you're gathering together, you're worshiping God, you're partaking in the Lord's Supper, and you're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a disciple of this person, Jesus Christ. If you're a Gentile, you're trying to figure out what it means to inherit Israel's faith as well. So that's why you're doing all of this. So it makes sense that the, the texts that ended up getting into the canon are the ones that sustained the life of the faithful, right? These are people who are seeking to submit to God's will, to live transformed lives. These aren't people that are saying... 
Um, I'm not seeing in this proposal an account of yada, 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 so this will have to go back to review. You know what I'm saying? But they are saying, this is good, this is sustaining my faith, this is sustaining our, our community's attempt to live a faithful life. Is that? Yeah, it, I just want, I mean, I, I'm just fascinated by, by the, you, you said it's the, the, the truths that stand the test of time for that community. 10,000 years from now, will the Bible be 66 books or 100 or two? I mean, I, I think, again, the, the canon's been closed for a while, and there, but there are debates to reopen it. I mean, technically, when you open a Roman Catholic Bible, there are more books in their Old Testament than there are in ours, okay? Um, and Martin Luther wanted to strike James from the canon. He thought it was like a works righteousness text, so he thought we shouldn't be reading it. But he was overruled by the wisdom of the community. So again, I think where we get into trouble with this, where this feels weird to us, is because I think we're so used to thinking of the Holy Spirit working individually in our lives. We're not used to thinking about the Spirit working through the community. But if we start to see the wisdom of the community and the Holy Spirit's work kind of cooperating with each other, then we stop feeling so weird about it. We start to say, the Spirit was at work in this community, this community that's seeking to live according to the norms of being Christ's disciples. So um, if we think about, so kind of going back to the question of inspiration. Andy, did you have a question? I, I just had a, a, a question. I guess I was wondering if, if we're living in kind of number four now. In other words, uh-oh, we lost. Yeah, I don't know what happened. That was weird. Uh, Go ahead. Sorry. Because we have the, the closed canon of Scripture, we still have the living act of Holy Spirit. We still have the communion of saints. We still have a gazillion new things that we're now looking at and saying, what does Scripture say? But equally, I have a map and I have a guide. What does the guide say about the map and about what I'm seeing? And so maybe there's a number four we all live in rather than only looking back to number three. Well, and, and even the, the earliest faith community I mean, if you think about it, you know, you've got, you've got Israel's history, okay? Israel's history, what Christians are saying is that history culminates with this one person, Jesus of Nazareth. His life, his death, his resurrection, and he's now ascended and sits at the right hand of God and is saving us, okay? He said, this, is, this truth transforms us. It is the truth. It is the answer to all of our questions. So you don't need more than him, Right? But to understand him, you need the prophets, you need Israel, you need that whole history, or you don't get him. And to understand him, you need the apostles' testimony to who he is. And by the way, to understand the apostles' testimony, you need Paul, right? And you need some of the other letters that are swirling around. But then you have these, these pieces that get added into the canon that, I mean, Revelation, for example. There was a big debate, do we need Revelation in here or not? Like, is it actually... But for, a, for an early community that's being persecuted, um, Revelation is giving us this glimpse of what God's intentions are for recreating things. And so it's showing them what our hope is for this new creation, and that becomes core to the church's expectation for the future. But it's always rooted in Christ. And so I think you're right, that we, we don't live in a time period where we need to keep asking what belongs in the rule. Because canon essentially just means there's a rule. There's a rule of faith. There's a standard for our faith. That standard is Jesus, okay? But to understand Jesus, it's not just as simple as reading about him. 
like my kids, I'm, I'm reading them stories about Jesus because I want to form their imaginations. But it's not enough. They need to know a lot more than that to really get the significance of who he is and what he means for us. So you need the apostles, you need Paul, you need Israel to get all of that. But you don't need, you don't have to read C.S. Lewis to understand Jesus, right? Um, you might need to read a good, you might need to read N.T. Wright to understand Paul, but N.T. Wright doesn't have to be in the canon, right? Not yet. Yeah, not yet. Yeah, yeah. Or I would say never. Um, yeah, uh, question. Uh, I know in science when you lock things in and say this is absolute truth, you run into problems. There's a little bit of a disturbing incident that happened with the uh, apostles came up to Jesus one day and said, Master said, there's some people over here believing you, but they're teaching something different. What should we do? Should we go stop them? And you understand what he said, if they're not against me, they're for me. But yet our movement in the past, if somebody believed in Jesus but taught something different, we always said they're going to hell. Now, Somehow that has to fit into this idea of a locked-in truth. Well, it depends. And is that still applicable today? It depends on what we mean by locked-in. Okay, so um, locked-in means if you don't do it my way, you're sinning. Yeah, so I I think that's not very that, that we don't find easy harmony with that in in who Jesus is. Um, I do firmly believe that that all of my ultimate questions in life are answered in this story, in this account of reality, okay? Um, I am locked in, quote-unquote, in that sense. But I'm not going to say, if you don't have the same reading I have of every detail of this, then we can't have any kind of communion with each other. I don't understand that as key to, to who we are. And ironically, in our history, um, that wasn't key to what Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone thought either. They thought we could agree on the essentials and not worry so much about getting every other thing right. But So, yeah, um, the Galatians did not have a written account of Jesus. Jesus was oral history to them. And so just because Galatians comes after the gospel accounts uh, doesn't mean that the time sequence was the same. And, and mm-hmm. does that give you a problem? It doesn't give me a problem because um, these are the early communities that are, they've already received the oral tradition, right? They're processing this orally. And there's evidence in scripture that part of the way they're processing it is also in worship. I mean, there's, there's something like hymns that they're singing that are encapsulating of the Philippians hymn about Christ outpouring himself. Um, so that they're inheriting the faith that way as well. And so it's the communities that are formed, that are being sanctified, that are, that are getting the instructions they're getting in Galatians, that are the ones that decide which gospel accounts are the most vital, right? So we have to see here the key point, which is that the communities of faith that are seeking to live sanctified lives are the same ones that are seeing what belongs in the core testimony to who God is and what God is doing. Okay, so I want to get to this point uh, this last point, and then we can hopefully have a, a minute more to talk. But um, So what I want us to think about is in this passage, we often focus so much on the inspiration part that we don't think about what comes after it. But what's being affirmed here is that Scripture is breathed out by God, okay? And we can that, that kind of becomes, given the conversation we just had, hard to nail down. 
But it means something like it is given to us from God. It is of God. God is working through this text. Okay? And what is God doing? God is teaching us. God is forming us. God is training us in righteousness so that we can do good works. This is not good works in a stuffy Church of Christ. We're going to be good, do good works. This is, and by the way, I don't mean that disrespectfully. I'm just trying to say, like, sometimes we get like, oh, good works. That sounds like works righteousness. That It's not that sort of thing, okay? This is about ministry. This is a text that trains us, that forms us, that shapes us to do the work of God in this world. And so when we read it, that's what we should be looking for. Who is God? What is God's heart? And I think that's what Jesus was saying to the people who were obsessing over the details of the Sabbath, right? Or the details of, well, you did this and you didn't do that. And you said this and you didn't say this. Um, He's saying you've missed the heart of God if you think it's about this. It's not that purity doesn't matter. It's not that living a disciplined life doesn't matter. But the whole point of it is to to live lives that are shaped by this love for God and God's mission in the world and being given over to that mission. And so if we read scripture and we're not seeing it that way, we're missing it. We're missing the whole indication and point of it. So when it comes back to how we're reading it, um, I would say we have to remember something like this. It was written for us to shape us, to shape our faith as people who want to be members of this community. But we need to remember it wasn't written to us. It was written by humans, real people with real personalities, um, to real people with real issues, in real historical context, in ancient languages. So we don't need to think that we can figure out every jot and tittle of what this means in terms of you know, some sort of code of action if we haven't done the homework of trying to unpack all of that ancient texture, all of the contextual stuff. Um, and, I, and again, when we think about what it was written for, it was written for this, for us to be trained to, do, to be ministers of the good news of, of Christ, not for us to make sure we get our Sabbath correctly executed, right? Um, it's for the sake of being formed as people of mission, people who are going to do God's work in the world. Okay, so um, I think I can wind up on the back of your handout. I had some kind of, a kind of summary of maybe some takeaways. Scripture is inspired. This doesn't mean dictated. It does mean that the people who were involved in producing Scripture were caught up in God's purposes. They were energized by the Spirit for communicating God's Word. Two, Scripture is breathed out to form people to do God's work in the world. It's full of useful information but its primary purpose is not to show us how to get things right. It's to equip us to do God's work, to be ministers of new creation. Third, the Bible is authoritative. But, and this is where I want you to hear me, I, I want you to hear me saying that it's that we have to submit ourselves to it, okay? There's a pattern that we need to submit ourselves to. But it's not in the way we might have thought when we were thinking of this legalistically. There's ever a time in our lives where we thought legalistically. It's rather about submitting ourselves to being formed in the image of Christ. So there's something like a plot in Scripture that tells us about God's character, God's intentions for the world. And living under Scripture's authority means seeking in that vision, soaking in that vision of reality. Um, And by the way, part of the way we do that is together. 
Uh, so coming together, being formed in life together, I mean, it's hard, you know? It's hard to do life with each other because we don't always get along. It's not easy. It's easier to stay home and go to brunch on Sunday, right? Uh, but it's important to show up and be together and live together because that's part of the way that we're formed. The other way that we're formed is by going out and actually ministering to people outside of the church, um, you know, getting our hands messy. And it's not going to be perfect, but this is how we're formed. This is how we learn who Christ is. Okay, and then number four, uh, we read Scripture to hear God addressing us here and now today. We listen to Scripture, not in order to refine our infallible opinions, but to refine our sense of vocation, the work that we're called to do. Um, so we have like a minute before we were supposed to dismiss. Yeah. Reconcile number four with the statement you have behind you. Um, what do you mean? <laughs> we, were, we read scripture oh, here this God one. addressing us here and now today. How does how that accord with what you've got written behind you? Okay, so I think we could think of this in terms of examples, right? So um, when I'm reading Galatians, and I think about how they might, there might have been people that were really hung up on uh, what it means to be a Christian. You've got to legalistically do X, Y, and Z. When Paul had emphasized over and over, no, we have a new high priest. The Spirit's been poured out upon all people. You don't have to be ethnically Jewish anymore. So I have to think... To understand that, well, that's a really different kind of struggle than I have, right? Um, and yet, what is it in my life or in my church's life where we get hung up on some issue, right? Something that we think is vital to being um, kind of what it means to be in, okay? And what might the Word of God be for us through this text? What are we being called into formationally? Uh, what are we being called to see, um, or it might just be the simple matter of, I'm called to see that I should give thanks. I should give thanks that I'm included in this now, that God's Spirit has been given to me. So it may not always be about feeling bad about who I am and what I've done and trying to be, it might just be about saying, wow, this story is amazing. I've been included in this family, right? So um, I think just hearing it now means understanding. I mean, this is why we still need Bible scholars, right? Uh, and I don't, I'm actually not one. I'm a theologian, so I have to, my colleagues would be so happy to hear me say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, we still, need, we still need historians and scholars to help us figure out the, this part, who it was written to, and what it meant, before we can figure out this part, right, the for us part. Um, and a lot of that requires being people who worship, people who pray. It can't just be people who just sit around and and think about it and cogitate. Okay, Roger. You, you touched on this uh, touched on this a bit in response to uh, one of Kevin's questions. If we really have a closed canon and it's somewhat near to the Christ event, the incarnational event, and that that basically occurred in 382, mm -hmm. how how can we as Protestants really justify the reduction in canon, the taking away of the apocrypha? Can can we do that? It, it was, that was such a debated issue for so long, right? Um, and I think it's one of those things where, I mean, I would say let's read it. Let's, let's look at it and see if there's something we're missing. But enough, I'll just put it this way, enough theologians I trust 
have engaged that closely, that I don't, it doesn't keep me up at night. Like, should I be reading the Apocrypha, right? Um, because enough people that I think have been sanctified, who are following Christ, have read that and said, it's not essential to our canon, right? And yet, why not read it? I mean, it couldn't hurt. It could be interesting, you know? Um, so I don't think it's a matter of, that we get into some really interesting discussions there about Protestantism versus Roman Catholicism. and Yeah, but um, I would just say my short answer to that is I trust the people who made the decisions. Yeah. Anything else? I've got a question here. Kind of a meta question. Like in your experience in, in your classes or whatnot, or even with adults, like how do people tend to receive this type of unpacking and all the messiness involved? Is, do they find it faith-threatening faith or enhancing? Uh, both. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, it's hard to hear that it's not as simple as maybe we had hoped. But at the same time, this is what science tells us. What, you know, something that looks simple, when you get a microscope out and there, zoom in on it, it's not. A cell is highly complex. Uh, a strand of DNA is highly complex. But I'm not going to try to tell my kids about DNA right now, right? Uh, my husband might, but uh, he likes to tell them stuff I don't think they're ready for. Uh, he got that idea from Fletcher. Yeah, I think Fletcher taught his kids about stuff. But no, I think that, um, again, this is the value of community, of doing this together, that um, if you hear me saying anything today, hear me say that when I first understood all of this, it was disorienting for me, but now... I love this. This is beautiful to me. This is like this, I see God's spirit working in marvelous ways that I could never have, if I could have predicted it, I think I'm at a point in my life now where I wouldn't find it true. You know, if I had, I mean, if I had thought this was something I could have made up uh, that was simple enough to kind of sit well with, like easily with me, it wouldn't ring true to me now. Uh, but when I look at this, this rings true to me. I see that um, there are ways that God cooperates with human agency to transform people. And so um, this can be disorienting, it can feel messy, but the call at, at the heart of it is still simple. It's about living a life given over to God and God's purposes. So that's a great question. Thanks. I think we're done. Okay. Thanks, Thanks y'all.